When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated R and is recommended restricted for anyone under the age of 17. Hi everyone, it's me, Jack Ward, for Sonic Society 744, the world's largest and longest-running showcase of modern audio drama. And right now I'm making a beeline to the Mutual Audio Network building. I had to leave Thanksgiving dinner early as I just remembered I'm supposed to meet David Alt at the Haunted Garden Shed on the Mutual property. As I hoof it across Halifax, let's listen to The Milkman of St. Gaff's, Episodes 1 and 2. Lovecraft meets Kafka on this serialized fantasy horror podcast about Howie, a troubled young man who joins the milkman of the island of St. Gaff's, only to discover that the milkmen harbor a dark and dangerous secret. See you later, and enjoy the double feature. Maybe I'll cut through these trees. This year... Prime members get holiday deals before anyone else. Which means you're kind of a big deal. The Prime Early Access Sale on October 11th and 12th, only for Prime members. Have you got an idea for a podcast? Let's hear it. ACAST is your all-in-one podcast platform for recording, editing, publishing, and monetizing. We've got you covered. Getting started is quick, easy, and free. Head to ACAST.com to join today. Rusty Quill presents. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gav's, starring Howie the Milkman. Call me Howie. I'm a milkman here on the island of St. Gaff's. St. Gaff's, in case you don't know, is an island about a hundred miles from the mainland. I didn't exactly come here to avoid the war, though it sounded awful with all those trenches and barbed wire. There are other reasons I came that maybe aren't fit to tell about right off. My first thought when I arrived was to work at the new shipyard, but it looked like awfully hard work. So I popped into the milk receiving station and asked if they needed a hand. Now, strictly speaking, as a man of fighting age from Mingsbite, I wasn't really allowed to work as a milkman on St. Gaff's. But I can be pretty resourceful when there's a need to be. So I got my uniform, my white badge, and I was off delivering milk in no time. I'd only been a milkman a couple of weeks when I did my first interrogation. It was a failure. I'd never had to question anyone before. Certainly it wasn't part of the job description when I joined up. I had no clue what kind of a mess I was getting myself into. 
you might be wondering why a milkman was interrogating one of his customers. It all had to do with the new boss, Corwin. The story really begins when Corwin arrived. I don't know why they didn't pick him out to be a general, or the commander of the whole army for that matter. He was a tall man, thin. If you were on his good side, you knew nothing could touch you. And if you weren't, well, you'll hear soon enough. He's the one who made me see that being a milkman wasn't just some job, it was a calling, a vocation, and crucial to the war effort. When he first came to the island with his two huge assistants, Frank and Beaver, he gave a speech to the whole organization, all the milkmen. Corwin dressed in a white milkman's uniform, even though he didn't do deliveries anymore. The only difference was his gold badge. I can remember him as clear as day standing up at the podium. My job here is a simple one. Oversee the installation of the electric thermalizer and with it, wrestle the bacteria count in our milk down to absolutely zero. We shall also safeguard the uninterrupted delivery of milk to the rapidly expanding population of St. Gaff's. In doing so, we will uphold a cornerstone of our culture, our heritage, our civilization. There has been talk of resorting to powdered milk for the duration of this struggle. This is the talk of cowards, of the fearful, of the defeated. And I will not hear of it. The wife at home baking a cake for her tot's birthday? The cream in your father's coffee while he reads his morning paper? This is what our men are fighting for. Our enemy here in this receiving plant, as it is further afield in the plains beyond Mingsbite, is vermin. Flies. And just as microscopic bugs pose an ever-present threat to our milk supply, so does the disease of subversion and loose talk pose a constant invisible threat to the war effort. And that is why I must ask you now to go above and beyond your station. Milkmen are everywhere. We see and hear more than the ordinary citizen can imagine. I'm not asking you to spy on your friends and neighbors, but if you do see something, hear something out of the ordinary, bring it to our attention. This I vow to you. Our milk will be the purest in the realm, and I want each and every one of you to remember, to the milkman who is pure at heart, all things are pure. It was quite a speech. And there I was, on my way to see Travis the fisherman. My truck rattled away over the coast road. The red moon was still up. The fisherman's cottage was about five miles out of town. A muskrat waddled across the road. I aimed the truck right at it, wondering what kind of a sound it would make if I ran it over. The little blighter wasn't moving too quickly, but I veered away at the last second. The engine nearly stalled going up the one hill on the way to the fisherman's cottage, the load heavier than normal with all that milk. As the motor groaned, it dawned on me. If this contraption breaks down out here at this hour, the whole lot will spoil and there will be hell to pay. There were big slabs of ice in the truck to keep the product cool, but they'd melt pretty quick if the sun came up, even though it was only springtime. 
But the engine held, and I had a few moments to look out over the sea, the crimson stars. The stars used to be white up to about three years ago, when they turned red. No one quite knows why. The scientists say it must be some dust from somewhere, an electrical disturbance, or a really big sinkhole, maybe. Me, I didn't care. It was a moment of peace and quiet, and I thought to myself that from now on, I'd always visit Travis first instead of last. City boys like me don't get a chance to see the stars much, especially if you're from the factory part of Mingsbite. After a few weeks on the island, maybe some of the smoke and soots got out of my lungs. I was shaken from my reverie when I saw a dog standing on the side of the road staring at me, like a Doberman, black. Didn't even flinch as I drove by. He looked mangy and hungry, with weird red eyes. I didn't know there were wild dogs on St. Gaff's. I looked back a couple of times and he was just standing there, staring at me. Maybe I was just seeing things. I came around the bend and caught sight of the pastel blue house, though it looked almost black in the red moonlight. I didn't have the truck's headlamp on since I forgot to fill it with oil. The boss says we'll get electric lamps soon. I arrived earlier than usual. That's what surprised him. There was old Travis standing on the edge of the sea with a spyglass and a lantern at his feet. He heard the motor and jumped, put the spyglass under his coat and picked up the lantern as if nothing had happened. He came walking over toward me with a big grin on his face as I hopped out. Travis had a full black beard, sharp blue eyes you couldn't look away from. Morning, Howie. You're out early. I sure am, Travis. Just changing up the route. Thought I'd visit you first. Two bottles, then? Two bottles it is, Howie. I went back and got the bottles, and then I remembered what Corwin had said. Watch out for any suspicious activity. You never know who might be a subversive. Even someone who seems like a good fellow might be up to no good. Travis seemed decent enough. He had a nice young daughter, Naomi, and mostly kept to himself, no wife that I ever heard of. His house was the furthest from town, and I got stuck with his route, no seniority. But I thought to myself as I got those bottles out, might he be signaling some enemy craft out at sea with the lantern? And what a hero I'd be if I uncovered such a foul conspiracy. So I said to him, Oh, Travis, I had a bit of a question for you if you don't mind too much. What is it, Howie? I got out my notebook and the pencil. I opened it to the first blank page. Then I thought writing might make him suspicious, so I put the notebook away again. I decided to sound casual, put Travis at ease. Were you watching for someone at sea out there, Travis? No, Howie, I had just an old fisherman's habit, looking out for the weather, whales, dolphins, and such like. The old cadre was one step ahead of me. And the lantern, Travis? Was that to signal someone? Someone on a ship, maybe? No, Howie, it's before dawn, and I didn't want to trip and fall on the rocks out here. You're a mighty curious lad, aren't you? He was on to me, time to think fast. Have you caught any good fish lately, Travis? Why, no, Howie, I haven't. I haven't been fishing at all these past six months. No one has. All us fishermen are working at the shipyard now, with the war. That's true, that's true. He had me there. A light came on in the upstairs of the cottage. Travis saw it too. Someone appeared in the window, but I couldn't see who. Travis said, Looks like Naomi's up. Anything else I can do for you, Howie? Travis was looking right at me with those clear blue eyes. The horizon was pink now. 
Dawn was about to break, and I thought maybe I'd stayed there too long. I could see the girl's silhouette in the window, watching us. I heard something scurry under the truck. The sound shook me from my thoughts. For such a rocky, barren island, there sure was a lot of wildlife. Howie? Travis said. No, Travis, I'd better get going. Be seeing you. And with that, Travis walked back up to the cottage, the lantern lighting his way. I made up my mind then and there to keep a careful watch on Travis from here on out, decent fellow or not. I wouldn't report anything now. I'd gather information, get him talking. He wouldn't trap me like that again. I turned the crank on the truck and got it started. But as it got out onto the coast road, it was making a funny sound. I heard a tittering, like a child laughing. The engine started making especially odd sounds just as I crested the hill. Then, it stopped. The truck rolled down the hill and I put on the brakes. I got out. It was lighter now. I opened the hood, but who was I fooling? I wouldn't know a tappet from a tie rod. I tried the hand crank again, but the blasted thing was dead. It was going to be a long walk back, maybe four miles into town. If I didn't get back fast enough, I'd lose the whole truckload of milk and surely my job as well. I looked out over the island to see if anyone was about. I hadn't been on this island but a few weeks. St. Gaff's was far from the mainland, mostly barren, some pasture land in the middle, but I'd never seen it. Where I was, there was nothing but rock and the road into town. What did catch my eye a few feet up the road, perched on a rock, was a stone gargoyle, maybe a foot tall, scowling at me. I stared at the thing for a moment, transfixed. The sun was just showing itself over the horizon. I squinted and I thought I saw the gargoyle move. Was it smiling at me? I stared into its eyes and I could feel it was happening again. I told myself that getting out of Ming's bite might stop it, even though I knew it wouldn't. The ground was getting so soft, my feet sinking, sinking. I fell beneath the ground and the rocks pulled through the very earth and sucked out into the deep green sea, pulled down deep. The surface began to blur. I kicked, I struggled, but I'd never make it up without drowning. My hands grasped at the water. I was still sinking. I knew some vast creature would be waiting for me down there, but among the rocks at the bottom, I saw my mother at the kitchen table serving tea. I sank down and couldn't stop it. And he was there, across from my mother, sitting at the table, bloated. That face, eyes turned to green jelly, his lower jaw gone now, the upper teeth grinning, accusing. His head lolled back with the current as he looked right at me. The pit of my stomach gave way. I tried to scream to say something to him and felt my teeth falling away. I watched them float off in a haze of blood. I could see nothing through the bloody water but huge, dark shapes moving towards me. I sucked deep and felt the water fill my lungs. I thrashed and pushed hard as I could to get away, get away from them. I was in thick weeds, clawing through. I pushed an armful of the green stuff away in the water and came face to face with the Doberman, the dog from the road, eyes red, snapping at me, the dog's face grotesque in the water, teeth exposed. I pushed as hard as I could to get to the surface. And then I felt a rough hand in my shoulder shaking me. It was Travis. I was standing beside the truck again. The sun was up. I was soaking wet. Howie? Howie, you all right there, lad? Travis always walked to work and back. I felt something in my mouth. 
I touched it with my tongue and could feel that I'd chipped a tooth. I spat the piece out. That gargoyle, I pointed. <laughs> my daughter Naomi put that there. Said it would ward off bad spirits. Didn't give you a fright there, did it? Did you take a dip in the ocean, Howie? I couldn't tell him what I'd seen. No, I just get the sweats sometimes. The truck's broken down and I've got to get this milk into town before it spoils. The boss will have my guts for garters. You just have a seat inside there and try to stop shaking. I'll have a look at the motor, he said. And as luck would have it, Travis knew a thing or two about motor cars, despite not owning one himself. Something had come loose and it was just a matter of screwing it back on. I gave him a lift into town. Perhaps I was wrong about Travis. I'd have to ponder the matter. As we drove, I looked out over the sea and wondered how it knew so much, and when it would pull me in again. In town, we rode past all the row houses they'd slapped together for the new workers at the shipyard. By now, they were in the deep shadow of the ship they were working on, a huge wooden warship. Her hull, even just partly built, towered over everything in town but the church steeple. I let Travis out at the shipyard and sped off to finish my deliveries. Back through the classier part of town, big old houses, leafy trees. I delivered to Mrs. Noseworthy, the old bat. She took the bottles and huffed when I told her about the truck breaking down. <laughs> but my crankiest delivery was Mr. Pyman on Grand Street. He wasn't even home. His maid said he was piping mad and stormed out of the house a while ago. I dropped off the milk and pressed on. On the corner of Mercy Street lived the old tinker, Mr. Greenwood. He was always up early and fiddling with some machine. Nothing in the world seemed to make him happier than his little inventions that I could hardly figure out. His house was a mess of ropes and pulleys, gears and wheels for transporting things where he wanted. I always put the milk bottles in a metal box that automatically withdrew into the house as soon as I closed the door. Today Mr. Greenwood wasn't there, but she was, his daughter. With her raven black hair as smooth as silk, she was cutting thorns off a rose bush. I stood and watched her clipping away. She moved like a poem in a book. Then I must have caught her eye because she turned with a start. Hey, what are you doing there staring at me like that? We'd never spoken before. I just watched her from afar. She raised her eyebrows since I still hadn't answered. Sorry, miss, I was just admiring your rose bushes. I'm the milkman. Yes, I can see you're the milkman. Howie, pleased to meet you. Likewise, and have you got any milk for us? Of course, of course I do. I put the bottles I'd been holding into Mr. Greenwood's box. I'm sorry for being late, I said. The truck broke down on the coast road and... Stormy, she said. Stormy? As in, that's my name. I was born in a big storm, she said. Stormy. Stormy. I kept thinking about her name. The whole way back to the receiving station, I felt like I was driving that truck through the clouds. Over and over again, I saw her turn around and heard her name, Stormy. And I forgot what kind of thrashing I was in for when I got back to the station. What in the name of the whale are you smiling at, you incompetent louse? That was Billings, the station manager. He'd had it out for me from the moment I started the job. He had these big, ugly lips that were too bright red and always bent into a scowl. Where have you been? We've had all sorts of complaints. He was standing outside waiting for me. I could see that all the other milk trucks were back at the station. I was the last one in. 
Get your scrawny behind inside this instant. Corwin wants to see you. I'll park the truck. By God, these boys will be the death of me if I just had five milkmen like Mike Myrtle. I hopped down and headed inside. Billings was enraged as a matter of course, so I didn't think much of his blustering. But Corwin, that was another matter. If there was one person in this world I didn't want to disappoint, it was him. As I went into the station, I heard yelling, but it wasn't Corwin's voice. There was Mr. Pyman waving a newspaper up at Corwin's face. When I got closer, Mr. Pyman aimed his newspaper at me. Ah, here he is now, the man of the hour. Is it really too much to ask to have a bottle of cream on my step by 8 a.m.? What is with all these new boys? I had the same milkman for 14 years, and I do not recall him ever being late, let alone not showing up at all. Corwin looked at me, a questioning smile on his face. My truck broke down on the coast road, I said. That didn't go over too well. Mr. Pyman continued to berate me, Mr. Corwin, and the whole organization. Corwin just kept smiling at him, cool as a cucumber. He assured Mr. Pyman that he wouldn't have to worry about late milk deliveries anymore. Finally, Mr. Pyman left, muttering about the hopelessness of new boys, motorized trucks, and innovation in general. Corwin's assistants, Frank and Beaver, were standing not far off. They both had the red badges of distinguished milkmen. Oh, how I longed for one of those badges. Corwin motioned to Frank and Beaver with his head, and they went out, following Mr. Pyman down the street. Corwin wasn't smiling anymore. Then he looked at me. He was calm. Is delivering milk too complicated for you? No, sir. What's your name? Howie, sir. Howie Coxwell. Well, Howie, you've made a very poor first impression. For the rest of this week, you'll be spraying the facility for flies after your shift as penance for your late deliveries today. He walked away. I was desperate. Mr. Corwin, sir, I saw something, something suspicious on my rounds. That's the real reason I was late. I just didn't want to say in front of Mr. Pyman. Corwin stopped and turned, his gaze intense, withering. And? I told him all about Travis and how strangely he'd been acting. How he was looking through a spyglass, flashing a lantern out to sea, opening and closing the lantern doors in a very peculiar way. I added that last part myself, but it wasn't too far from the truth. Corwin thought about this for a few moments. Travis, a fisherman out of town. This is very good work, Howie. Very good. You may be the only boy who was paying attention when I gave my talk. I don't think this Travis is a problem from what you've told me, not yet at least. But you have a good eye. You're observant. I might have another project for you. Come with me a moment, Howie. He brought me back to where all the milk was pumped in and out of trucks, and I saw, for the first time, the electric thermalizer. It was a huge contraption with wires and lights and gauges. I'd never seen anything like it. Do you know Mr. Greenwood, who lives on Mercy Street? Corwin asked. Yes, I do. He's on my route. Good, good. This Mr. Greenwood came to me a few days ago. He fancies himself a bit of an engineer. He was suspicious of our new thermalizer. Thought he might know better than the Department of Lactic Affairs about the best way to preserve the integrity of our product. That's just awful. It is, Howie. I'm glad you see it that way. 
I'd like you to keep a close eye on the Greenwood household. Spend some time with them. Ingratiate yourself with them. You bring me any information at all that seems out of the ordinary. I thought about Mr. Greenwood and his little machines. I thought about Stormy cutting thorns off the rose bushes. The Greenwoods seem... What was that, Howie? He glared down at me. A wave of blackness crossed his face and I felt like I was falling into some black pit. Yes, sir, I'll keep a close eye on them, Mr. Corwin. Good, now get spraying. I don't want to see a solitary fly in here tomorrow. I was on my way to get the fly juice, trying to sort everything out. Corwin was punishing me, which was a bad thing, but he wanted me to do this mission, which was perhaps a good thing. But then my day took a turn for the decidedly nasty. Billings stopped me. Now he was smiling. Smiling in a constipated kind of way, mind you, but I suppose it was the best he could do. Just a moment there, Howie. Yes? I've been looking at your personnel file, lodging a complaint from Mr. Pyman, you see. There are a couple of oddities I want to ask you about. That was the last thing I wanted to hear, given the circumstances that brought me to the island. Your papers say you're from Buckle. That's right. You know the people of Buckle don't have to sign up for the Tau Law draft since it's occupied territory. Of course I know that. But did you also know that we've already had a couple boys try to come out here, apply to be milkmen, and pretend they were exempt from military service for some reason or other? No, that's terrible to hear, Mr. Billings. What's really terrible is what happens when they're found out. Pit testers on the front line, that's what they become. And a pit tester's life ain't long. No, I suppose it wouldn't be. Like I was saying, I happen to see on your file, we've got a copy of your official residence form. Buckle, S7H3B2. But then on your job application, you put your postcode as K9V1G4. That's in Mingsbite. And boys your age, from the capital, should be on the front. They don't get to be milkmen on the Isle of St. Gaffs. I must have turned white as my uniform since Billings' awful smile twisted even further across his blasted head. No need to say anything, son. It's easy enough to sort this out. I'll reserve a spot for a phone call tomorrow. I'll ring up the township of Buckle and see if they've got any record of you. And if I find you've been lying, we'll have a little chat with Mr. Corwin, and your life won't be worth a glass of moldy, clotted cream. And with that, I went home. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Milkman of St. Gaffs, a bi-weekly podcast. This episode was written, recorded, and produced by me, Chris McClure. Episode 2 will be available September 7th. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also donate and help support the show at HowieMilkman.com. Hey, listener. Are you thinking of starting a podcast? Acast has everything you need to get your idea out of your head and into people's ears. Record and edit your episodes with our Podcastle integration and seamlessly publish your show to Acast to reach millions of listeners all over the world. And the best part? It's completely free. Get started today at Acast.com. A-S-T.com. Rusty Quill presents... Hi, this is Chris McClure, the creator of The Milkman of St. Gaffs. I really hope you're going to enjoy episode two. 
And before we start, I would just like to say a big thank you to my very first Patreons, Rory Schachter and Viviana Alini. Thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to learn more about supporting the podcast, you can find out at the website howiemilkman.com. And with that, let's get on to the episode. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gaffs, starring Howie the Milkman. I was imagining different ways of killing Mr. Billings, or at least hurting him real bad. Maybe I'd run him over with a milk truck, pour some insecticide in his tea. Why Billings had it in for me, I'll never know, but figuring out that I'd written the wrong postal code on my job application, that was the work of a truly depraved mind. I was just opening a bottle of fly juice and imagining how Billings would sound choking on the stuff and... Stop! It was McMurdle. McMurdle was another milkman about my age, 18 or so. He was the golden boy of the operation, and everyone just assumed he had a bright career ahead of him in the service. He had red badge written all over him. I couldn't stand the peckerhead. He showed me how the stuff had to be diluted, how you had to put gloves on, and use a special funnel since you might burn yourself otherwise. He was telling me all about the places that were difficult to reach and how to use the sprayer. I told him to get lost and I could figure out how to spray for insects, thank you very much. He said, suit yourself, and left. Still, I was glad I didn't burn myself. Unfortunately, when I did get to spraying, I had the nozzle pointed the wrong way and got a big mouthful. I choked a bit, spat the stuff out, cursed McMurdle for not telling me about the nozzle, and got to spraying. Now, first of all, the spray stank like vinegar and rotten eggs, and second of all, the place was clean as a whistle, so I didn't really spend too much time on it, truth be told. And also, there was a sickly feeling in my stomach from the fly juice, and from worrying what was going to happen tomorrow. So I locked up and made my way home, feeling worse and worse. On the way home, there was a sign for a doctor. Dr. Barrett, doctor and apothecary, it said. I'd never been to a doctor before, never had the money for one. I decided to go in, thinking maybe he could help me with the nausea and with my other problem. I sat in Dr. Barrett's office. There were cabinets of powders and liquids of every color, He was dressed all in black, sort of like a priest. I didn't know quite what to expect. I told him I thought I'd probably swallowed some of the bug spray. He said it wouldn't hurt if it was just the one time. He didn't really seem to care. I think he expected me to leave, but I just sat there. Is there anything else I can do for you, Howie? Listen, doctor, did you ever hear of someone seeing things that weren't really there? That seemed to get his attention. I have heard of that, yes. Have you been seeing things, Howie? No, no, not me. One of the other boys was talking, and I thought he was pulling my leg. He said sometimes he'd see animals, things chasing him. And sometimes it's as if he disappears and he's somewhere else, somewhere like a nightmare. And then he comes back. Extusius. Pardon me, doctor? 
It sounds like you've got extusius, a kind of trance accompanied by loss of reason and occasionally hallucinations. Oh, doctor, don't misunderstand. It's not me. It's McMurdle. He's quite far gone, to tell you the truth. I'm worried for him. Nonsense. I know McMurdle. He's fit as a fiddle, sound of body and mind. Extusius can be treated, Howie. He went to his cabinets and looked all around. He brought out a dark bottle of liquid. Podexium. A miracle of modern medical knowledge. This should help calm the brain. But you don't drive a milk truck, do you, Howie? I certainly do, doctor. I think it would be best if you didn't drive the truck anymore. You never know when these trances can start. You wouldn't want to be driving when something like that happens. Well, but if I take the medicine, I should be fine, right? No, Howie. We can't have someone under the influence of Podexium driving a milk truck through the town. In my opinion, motor cars should be outlawed altogether. Nothing but noise and danger. Did you know we've had five innocent people run down and killed by these machines since they arrived on the island? Modern convenience, some say. I say we're tending towards a total disregard of human life. Sure, doctor. My apologies, I shouldn't be ranting at you. That'll be two Ruperts for the Podexium. Take two drops in a glass of water when you're feeling anxious, and I don't want to see you behind the wheel, young man. I left there smarting. Two Ruperts? That's a day's wages. And I wasn't even sure I had Extusius in the first place. I got back to my place, one of the new clapboard buildings by the shipyard. I had a bare room, just about like the 20 other rooms in the building, a bed, a table, shared bathroom down the hall. My room had a picture of a whale hanging on the wall. I had my dinner of cold beans and sausage. By the light of the window, I read a few pages of my favorite serial, Eliza Pike, Detective Extraordinaire. Eliza was a wealthy woman, but she spent her time tracking down missing children and orphans from the poor part of town, the ones no one cared about. Whenever she was at some society party, and some rich banker would laugh and ask her why she bothered with this occupation, she would stick her finger in his face and give him a right dressing down. She'd say things like, Money isn't everything, you know. I loved how she stuck it to those stuffed shirts. I hear there's a radio drama of Eliza now, but I've never had a radio. In this week's story, she was tracking down a fat little fellow who'd been kidnapped by a chemist who believed in fire gods and wanted to sacrifice the young pudger. I couldn't wait to see how it ended. Outside my room, the shipyard was winding down for the day and the sun was getting lower and redder. Later, I was lying in my bed, staring at the ceiling and trying to figure out what to do about Billings, and the banging started. It happened almost every day. The woman next door started hitting the wall with a large stick. If you ever saw her on the street, she always had the stick with her. She was always muttering to herself. She'd lost her mind a long time ago, and her sister, the landlady, put her up in the room beside mine. I tried to put the banging out of my mind. I had to have a plan for tomorrow. I couldn't let Billings ruin my whole future life's work. Maybe I'd interfere with the telephone somehow so Billings couldn't make a call. Try to get hold of my personnel file. Maybe blackmail Billings about something. My mind kept going back to the things I'd seen under the ocean. The horrible dog's face, my mother down there, and him. 
and about Corwin's mission, about watching Mr. Greenwood, and about the doctor. Would he tell someone at the receiving station if he saw me driving, which he surely would at some point? Finally, I'd had it. Before I knew what was happening, I was up in my bed, screaming at the top of my lungs and pounding on the wall. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! The banging stopped. I heard some muttering. A couple of minutes later, there was a knock on my door. It was Mrs. Summertag, the landlady. She couldn't have been more than four feet tall and just about the same width. I never saw her without a big smile on her face. Hi, Howie, how are you? You making out okay? Job going well? Hauling lots of milk? Everything's fine, Mrs. Summertag. Are you here about the banging? I didn't mean... Banging? Oh, dear, oh, dear. Perhaps it was the pipes. The pipes. You know the plumbing here? It was thrown together in such a slipshod way, not like back home. N no, it was your sister banging on the wall with her stick like she always does. And then I was banging back. Could you ask her? Oh, dear, my sister's birthday is coming up, of course. We've got to fix the plumbing before then or we'll be mortified in front of the guests. Of course, you're invited, young man. Don't worry about not being invited. I'm going to bake a cake. All right, missus, if you don't mind, I'd like to get some sleep. Got to get up very early, you know. Right you are, Freddy. After she left, I started drifting off. And then it started again. I put the pillow over my head, but it was no use. Soon after, I was out on the street in the moonlight. There was no one around. I didn't know where I was going. I passed by the cathedral. The only telephone in town, of course, was in the cathedral's bell tower. Maybe I could get in there and break the thing. I went up to the great oak doors, but they were locked. I continued downtown. It was a clear night. The red and white moons were casting weird shadows over everything. I saw old Mr. Florsham, the retired professor, shuffling around. The old guy couldn't sleep and was often seen rambling through the streets at night. I just walked on past him. When I got to the receiving station and passed by the parked trucks, I thought I heard the sounds of digging coming from Corwin's office. The station, by the way, is a big square building with an adjoining lot for trucks and deliveries. It's all painted over white, except for Billy on the wall. That's what I call them anyways. Billy is a big mural of the most perfect smiling milkman you ever saw, holding up a bottle. Cold, delicious milk, he said. I never failed to greet old Billy on the wall with a cheerful good morning before my shift. I'm sure he was put up there to set us milkmen in the right frame of mind before going out into the world. But tonight, old Billy on the wall seemed to be glaring, asking me what the blazes I was doing out here. So I walked on past without a word. In addition to the main station building, Corwin had an office built on the side of the station, on the side where the trucks parked. He was a busy man, so he needed his own space to work uninterrupted. No one was allowed in there. The only really striking thing was that his office had a big set of double doors instead of just the one door, and that's where this digging noise was coming from. But probably my mind was playing tricks on me. It was probably just an echo of the old woman's banging on the walls. 
There was no one around to see, so I unlocked the door and let myself in. Being in there with no one around was quite liberating. It was as if you'd snuck into your schoolhouse at night as a child and had the whole place to yourself. So just because I could, I let out a loud yop. What was that? It sounded like a tool dropping. Maybe I wasn't so alone. I listened and didn't hear anything more. Perhaps hurrying up and getting out of there would be best. The back room where Billings worked and where all the files were was locked. I didn't have the key to that door. Picking the lock might work, if I had some clue about how to pick a lock. It was dark and I groped around for something I could use. And there was that digging noise again. To hell with it. I smashed the door with all my weight and fell into the room. The moonlight was shining in the window, and I went through all the personnel files as fast as I could. They were alphabetized, but mine wasn't there. Billings must have taken it home with him. So he didn't even trust me that far? The miserable, low-minded bastard! There was no way to fix the door, and Billings might figure it was me rooting around in there in the night, so I grabbed an armful of files to make it look like an act of industrial espionage and ran out as fast as I could, stuffing the files under my shirt. Once outside, I locked the front door, and to make it look like a proper burglary, I picked up a rock, smashed the front window, and ran like hell. A few steps later, though, I froze. Standing there, just outside Corwin's office, was Beaver, Corwin's bodyguard. He was holding a shovel and just staring at me with no expression at all. I turned away and ran all the way home, clutching the files under my shirt. I didn't know what to do with the papers, so I just shoved them under my mattress and lay there awake, sweating and trembling until it was time to get to work. I don't know if I slept a wink that night. When I reported to the station that morning, the police were already there. Inspector Piercy was examining the broken window shards with a magnifying glass, and one of his men was speaking to Billings. I watched Piercy for a moment. He was mumbling to himself about particles and fibers, testing the wind with his finger, and Billings snapped at me. This is no business of yours, Howie. Get to your route. We'll not have two days in a row of late deliveries. As I got the truck started and hopped in, I noticed there was Beaver again, standing on the edge of the parking lot, just staring right at me and not saying a word. Sweat broke out on my forehead, but off I drove. The morning went on without incident. Travis wasn't acting so suspiciously this morning. Mrs. Noseworthy huffed at me despite my timely arrival. I dreaded dropping milk off for Mr. Pyman after the spat yesterday, but his wife answered and took the milk. She looked upset. Well, I'd be upset too if I were married to old Mr. Pyman. The last stop, of course, was the Greenwood household. It occurred to me as I pulled up to the house that if I did a good job with this Greenwood assignment, Corwin might overlook any minor discrepancies in my files. And the more I thought about it, the more I saw that this was the key to all my troubles. If I succeeded, I could not only thumb my nose at Billings, I'd probably even get a red badge. And Stormy would have to take notice of a red badge. She'd have to give me a chance then. 
and all I had to do was find some kind of incriminating evidence against Mr. Greenwood and make sure Stormy never found out it was me that uncovered it. I knocked on the door determined to charm my way into their lives and to unearth whatever it was that Corwin knew was in there. But no one came to the door, so I knocked again. The neighbor popped her head out. There's a note, dearie. And indeed, there was a note at the foot of the door. It read, Death in the family, out of town until Thursday earliest. No milk, the Greenwoods. I cursed my bad luck and started back to the station. On my way, though, I saw something very unusual. Passing back by Mr. Pyman's house, I saw two police cars parked outside, and two officers were dragging old Mr. Pyman out of his house. He had bruises on his face, and his hands were all bandaged up, maybe from resisting the police. He was kicking and screaming, and his wife just stood there covering her mouth with both hands. And then Mr. Pyman spotted me and turned red as a choke cherry. He pointed at me and in a weird, high-pitched scream shouted, It's him! This is all his doing! I had nothing to do with it! I had no idea what he was talking about, but I stopped my truck beside a police car and asked the officers inside what was going on. Seems the old man broke into the milk receiving station last night and made off with a number of sensitive files. Someone dropped us an anonymous note and we found the papers right where the note said they'd be, under his mattress. Looks like he was planning to sell the documents to the enemy. Who'd have thought the first confirmed case of true subversion on the island? The officers stuffed a gag into the old man's mouth and shoved him in the back of the car. This was all highly perplexing since I knew it was actually me who'd broken into the milk station last night and I didn't see Mr. Pyman anywhere. Maybe he'd snuck in after I left? What on earth was going on? I almost drove home to check the papers under my bed, but I'd be late getting back to the station and I was in enough hot water already. I pulled the truck onto the lot and there was Mr. Billings waiting for me, his ugly red lips grinning at me. Finish your route, Howie? No troubles this morning? No trouble, Mr. Billings. Don't think I haven't forgotten about our appointment. Good thing the burglar didn't get this. And he pointed to a satchel slung over his shoulder. Corwin's with the police at the cathedral. They've had to spend a lot of time on the phone trying to arrange transportation for Mr. Pyman. But once they're done, it'll be my turn. Nothing to say? Not to worry, Howie. Now get in the back and start spraying. I went back and got the juice, but I had the shakes in my hands. I could feel a pressure rising in my head. I remembered what the doctor had told me. He said, If you start getting anxious... Just have a drink of this here stuff, and you'll be fine. The bottle of Podexium was in my bag. I uncorked it and took a few gulps. I got to spraying and, by the whale, one day of inattention surely had made a difference. There were flies buzzing everywhere. Even if I somehow got off from the postcode fiasco, there was no way Corwin would let me off the hook for all those flies. The man hated vermin. I sprayed every little nook and cranny, every pipe. I watched the little buggers die, but still they kept coming. The air was getting thick with the things, rubbing against my skin like a carpet. The buzzing in my ears, 
They were landing on me, expelling their acid and trying to digest me. I knew they were. The sprayer was empty. I surrendered, and the world went black, buzzing, close, hot, and I felt I'd been swallowed and I was crawling in the blackness through a tunnel. They were talking, laughing, milling about with glasses of champagne, and then I was in a Mingsbite tube station with no trains, just a lot of fancy people in gowns and dinner jackets. I tried to get through to the exit, up to the street, but couldn't get past the press of bodies. The women's lips covered in garish red lipstick, drinking, talking, laughing. I pushed and pushed, and then, one by one, they disappeared. Each one shot up into the air like an angel flies up to heaven. Until I was alone, with the dog, the Doverman, the hound from hell with its red eyes and thirsty fangs. It ran me down. It bit my leg hard, snarling it wouldn't let go. I shook it off and ran like the dickens across the station. I got to the wall. I was about to jump into the tunnel and run. But something welled up inside me. What was this dog? Why should I run from it? As it leaped, maw agape and aimed directly at my throat, I grabbed the thing in midair and slammed its vile head into the wall. It fell, and I fell, still clutching its neck. I smashed its head against the floor tiles again and again until its skull went soft in my hands and the brains oozed out its ears. And just like that, it was rotten and festering, its dead eye looking laughingly at me. A train passed by without stopping. And then I was soaked in sweat in my bed. There was the picture of the whale, my detective magazine, and I could have cried to be back in my own place with my own things and the shipyard out the window. I checked under the bed and the papers, thank goodness, were still there. It was early evening now. But something was hurting, my leg, and there was a knocking at the door. I could hardly get up. It was Mrs. Summertag. My goodness, Freddy, your leg, you got it caught in some machine? I looked down and saw that she was right. There was a real bite out of my leg and it was bleeding all over the place. My head was pounding like I'd had a couple of pints of Midlands whiskey. I opened my mouth, but nothing came out. Well, Freddy, you'd better get down to the milk station. Something terrible's happened. I ripped up an old shirt and tied it around my leg as best I could and hobbled down to the milk station. It was almost sunset. When I got there, the police had already arrived. Corwin was standing and talking to Beaver and Frank. He gave me a sideways glance as I passed by. The other milk boys were there. McMurdo was even crying. <laughs> I pushed through to see what all the fuss was about. And there, lying on the ground, was Billings, half his throat torn away, flies crawling all around his revolting red lips, a few maggots crawling around his nose. And if you've ever seen those things, you know they can really move. His dead eye looked at me, but the bastard couldn't say a goddamn thing. And there, on the ground, was my personnel file that no one in their right mind would care to examine as closely as that dead man on the street there. McMurdo was standing beside me. Who could have done such a horrible thing and to such a lovely man? The pecker had exclaimed. A terrible shame, I said. Mr. Piercy came up to us. Boys, I'm afraid I have some terrible news, 
Something awful has happened to Mr. Billings. As if we couldn't see the cadaver moldering away right in front of us. If you saw anything strange, you should tell me right away. I sprayed for flies and went straight home, nothing out of the ordinary, I said. The poor man, McMurdle whimpered. Right, well, I'm going to check around for fibers. There is something very strange going on at this station, and I don't like it. You boys will have to come in for an interview in a day or two, so sort out everything you remember about today. I limped back home in the red light of dusk. I racked my brain trying to remember, knowing that what happened to Billings was somehow my fault, knowing I'd done something terrible, but not remembering quite what it was. I stopped in an alley and puked. I wiped off my mouth with my sleeve. The sky turned a brilliant crimson, and the sun dipped over the horizon, and some other feeling bubbled up and mixed in with the black forgotten memories. My heart filled with gratitude to the moon and stars for my wondrous luck. I was off the hook. Thank you so much for listening to episode two of The Milkman of St. Gaffs. The podcast is written, recorded, and produced by me, Chris McClure. For more information about how to support the podcast, go to howiemilkman.com. The next episode, episode three, will be available on September 21st and will be entitled Numbers. And I look forward to seeing you there. Have a good two weeks. And that's the Sonic Society for this week. Be sure to check for the show notes for The Milkman of St. Gaffs. And join me and co-host David Alt back here next week. Until then, I'm Jack Ward saying take care of each other and listen to more audio drama. Oh, goodness. Maybe I shouldn't have taken that shortcut. I think I'm lost.
being a sonic cinema production. The bridge between men and machine. What kind of change? One that changes everything. The organic and the digital. His head, it's metal. Your friend Alvin the Chipmunk is a non-stop recording hard drive. The ability to record every human sense. Sight, sound, even thought. Everything anyone could ever see or hear gets recorded. Any human being could be a spy. This chip will allow us to know everything, as will the people we sell it to. They'll see all the data. Don't you get it? There is no one that can stop us. Hey, Rockstar. The Rapscallion Agency, a new audio drama from the creators of the Leviathan Chronicles, follows two of its youngest characters, Lizette and Clurican, who move to Paris. So, Clurican is in Paris. Welcome to Paris. And find themselves entangled in a sinister plot to control the world's most sensitive information. I can take them out. I can do with three of them. Now there's two. We've got to get out of here. No one is going anywhere. Leviathan Audio presents The Rapscallion Agency, available November 1st. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.